another thing I wanted to kind of broach and get your opinion on uh, why people don't like Van Til, especially in apologetics communities. From from what I've seen, um, now I'm studying philosophy. I studied theology at TEDS. Now I'm working on a philosophy religion degree. And there's a big contrast in the sources that people use. In theology, people are much more happy to talk about Heidegger and to use continental sources. And in philosophy, they're like, what? No, I will never yeah. use that. And I wonder, the apologetic, modern apologetics is very influenced by analytic philosophy and all the analytic philosophers of religion. Hmm. I think that maybe because Van Til writes more in a continental style and uses continental sources and, and is talking to continentals, perhaps that's why some people are like, you know, he's so hard to understand. I hear this all the time where people say, you know, he, English wasn't his first language. I haven't found them that hard to understand, but perhaps that's because I've had your footnotes this whole time. Um, but what, what do you make of that, that distinction between continental and analytic and, and maybe Van Til inheriting some of that beef? Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is a very special one. They're all very special. They're all very special in their own way. This one has been a long time coming. I have with me Dr. K. Scott Oliphant. This dude has taught me a ton about theology, apologetics, Van Til, philosophy, all sorts of stuff. I've been reading his books for years and years and years, and uh, and here we go. I have him on. We're going to be talking about uh, Van Til's A Christian Theory of Knowledge. This is the old school version. This is where I have, I don't know if you can see, all my notes and stuff, but he he's just edited a new volume with uh you know westminster seminary press and it's got a bunch of his footnotes in it so if you guys know anything about van Til, you know that uh like half of the new editions have uh, dr oliphant's notes as the footnotes and uh, the others have other folks but i'm really excited about this one this is a great book and i'm glad to see it back in print for a new audience so um before we jump in please support the podcast on patreon or youtube members wherever you get in this podcast at there are, there are new lectures up by, by yours truly on apologetics for the folks who support this podcast. You guys can get that exclusive content. That'd be awesome. You can support the podcast by buying my merch, all sorts of stuff. Keep the lights on. Help me feed my dogs. Uh, and that's probably enough commodification. Let's get in with Dr. K. Scott Oliphant and talk about Van Til, knowledge, continuity, discontinuity, all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, here we go. <clears throat> Dr. Oliphant, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Parker. It's nice to see you. Yeah, you too, man. This this is, um, I feel like I already know you. This is our first time meeting, but I've read yeah. your books for years and years and years. Uh, as we get in here, I've heard your story a billion times. So I'm like, oh, we're, you know, old friends here. But the audience may not know you uh, a whole ton. Why did you get into theology uh, in, instead of philosophy maybe that, that might be a good a good start to things yeah thanks well um i actually began my early christian days thinking about christian philosophy because when i was at university in texas uh there was one philosopher who taught at that university and he happened to be a christian and hmm. so as as an early chris as a new christian myself uh taking his course he was he was one of the first uh he was probably the first person i met who was a thinking christian and and by that i just mean a person who was thinking philosophically about christianity he'd written his dissertation on david hume and <clears throat> had kind of refuted 
his uh, argument on miracle, against miracles and that sort of thing. And so it's the first I'd ever heard of any of that. And he actually offered a course. This was a secular university. He offered a course on Francis Schaeffer. And wow. the, the way he was able to do that is he entitled his course Issues in Philosophy. And he said he did that so he could teach anything he wanted to. So this, <laughs> so Schaefer was Issues in Philosophy. And we went through Schaefer. And back in those days, he was relatively new. Um, God, who was there, I think the trilogy was published. He is there and he is not silent, escape from reason. So we read all of that and then eventually got into how should we then live. Um, and all of that was just brand new to me. So I started thinking, what in the world does my Christianity have to do with these philosophical questions? And my my professor, his name is Art Johnson. Um, he's still alive. I'm, I'm I'm sure about that. Living in Colorado, retired now. But uh, what a dear man and, and what a dear saint. And and he helped me through some of these things. And then I started reading Schaefer. And then uh, Christianity Today came out with a uh, an, a, a, a magazine uh, with. Van Til on the front. I've actually got it right in front of me here on my wall. It's a, it's a 1977 Christianity Day, so that shows you how old I am. Um, and, and it was an interview with Van Til. And in that interview, there was a, a little box description that said Van Til has taught such luminaries as E.J. Carnell, Francis Schaeffer, etc. Mm-hmm. So I thought to myself, since I've read Schaeffer now, it's probably time to get into Van Til. So so I started reading Van Til. Took, it took a month for the book to get to my house. So these are pre-Amazon days. You know, I went down yeah. to the local bookstore and ordered. Um, man had never heard of the author or the publisher or anybody. So we, we, he had to get it. He said, it'll, it'll take about a month. So I finally got it. It was Defense of the Faith. Um, I was uh, blown away in so many ways because I knew what I was reading was substantial and significant. But I also knew that there were many things I just didn't understand. So I, I took took it to, to my philosophy professor and I would skip class and, and take him to the to the student union building and say, help me with this. Here's what he says. What, is, what does he mean? Yeah. And sometimes he would say, OK, I think he's going this direction with that. And sometimes he would say, I have no idea what he means. So um, I didn't know what to do since I was kind of stuck out in the panhandle of Texas. And so I, I wrote to this address on the back of the book which was Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And I said, hey, I'm kind of out here in the panhandle and I have some questions on this book I'm reading. Can anybody help me? And they wrote back and said, um, Dr. Van Til has retired from teaching now. And he said, feel free to write him. So he and I began a correspondence at that point, uh, back and forth. Um, and that's kind of a long way to get to, to, to your question. What, what happened to me reading Van Til, this might sound surprising to some, is that my theology changed before any before any sort of philosophical or apologetic uh, substance was uh, resident in my brain, one of the first things I began to see was that I had some theological issues that had to be addressed in my own life. So I just remember reading Van Til on on the atonement. It just has a little section on what Christ uh, did, you know, at the beginning of Defense of the Faith. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to look at this issue again. So I became soteriologically Calvinistic reading Van Til. All those things began to come together to me. I was working in an evangelistic ministry back then called Young Life. You're probably familiar with that. Yeah, of course. Certain certain um, affinities with what you do. But um, and, and, and I was I was I was uh, in Texas. So in Texas, it's sort of a what, what you might call this is very general, but kind of an Armenian culture. And so that was in the air, and that was just what I was taught and what I believed. 
Um, and now that I started reading Mantell, my theology just completely changed. And I began to see the implications of reform theology for thinking philosophically. So that's kind of the direction I went. And I, I studied some philosophy, kept studying some philosophy, took a few courses. When I came to Westminster, I went to Villanova, took four or five courses over there. Um, just just to kind of see what was going on there very much in the continental tradition of philosophy, just yeah. kind of see what was going on in philosophy there and continued to read and study philosophy through the years. But all for the sake of expressing what I think is a biblical apologetic, if needed, in philosophical terms. So that's kind of what I've been trying to do. And then most of my career, what, I, what I've tried to do is translate what I say, translate Van Til into um, uh, a vernacular that's going to be hopefully more readable, understandable, uh, helpful to people um, both in the church and, and in the academy. So that's that's kind of what I've tried to do. Philosophical idealism is not front and center anymore like it was in Van Til's writing. So get all of that um, language kind of out of there and then try to, to, to press the, um, the theological and philosophical implications of what Van Til was doing in his apologetic, which every time I read him are just they're just rich and deep and and yeah. and so so thorough in in what he was doing, in, in spite of his kind of broad overview of the way he wrote. Yeah, that that's so awesome. So I actually I actually came into apologetics through Van Til because I was hmm. very much a product of the uh, young, restless, and reform folks. Hmm. My brother became a, a, a hardcore Calvinist because of uh, his professors at TEDS. They, oh. they were just, one of them was just railing against uh, Calvinism. And, and my brother, Joel was like, let me go check this out. Then he calls me and I'm, a, I'm an undergrad and he's like, Hey, I think I'm a Calvinist. You know, here's, here's, he explained it all to me. And he's like, okay, now you deal with it. And I, I actually wow. started crying. Cause I was like, man, my, <laughs> my childhood, uh, yeah. my childhood Sunday school faith is like, it's, it's not what's up. And so then I started reading the Bible more and, and seeing that. And then I was looking for an apologetic and uh, came in through Bonson's reader. Oh, and uh, yeah. that was a, a kind of a wild place to start. But then yeah. uh, through that, you know, read your notes, uh, your version of, of Van Til's fourth edition, maybe of Defense of the Faith, mm-hmm. and then got in through that. And then because I saw him interacting with Schaefer, I went back and read all of like everything I could by Schaefer and then started reading Gordon Clark. And then I read Carl oh. Henry. And oh. I, I realized like a lot of these people, um, they have they have like diehard fans and followers uh, Herman Bovings, another you and I were talking about. I, I came to all these people because of Van Til, but then when I talk to people, I could talk to people about uh, Bovink all day. Then I bring yeah. up Van Til and they get triggered. Or yeah. you know, I'm talking all, all the Christian philosophers love Francis Schaeffer. A lot of them got into philosophy because of Francis Schaeffer. I'm like, you know, his teacher was Van Til, and a lot of stuff that he uses got from Van Til. Then they yeah. freak out and they don't like that. So, <laughs> or the the theologians, a lot of them. You know, Carl Henry is kind of uh, a dead name now, but some yeah. of the evangelicals, I went to TEDS as well, but there's a Carl F.H. Henry Center. And right. like, you know, Henry in, in many of his books cites, he thanks Gordon Clark, he thanks uh, Henry, uh, Jellema, and he thanks Van Til. Right. And it's like, you, yeah. you, these bring, you know, let's get together on some stuff, but. Yeah, well, yeah. good for you. Exactly right. You know, um, just, just, if I could just address some of that, um, 
You know, Vintel was uh, at a unique place and a unique time in history as, as Machen, you know, finally got him to come to Westminster Seminary after three yeah. requests. You know, Machen had to go out to, to the Midwest and eyeball him and say, you know, sort of do a feral to Calvin. Um, yeah. you, you've got to do this. So so leave your pulpit and come on out. Vintel did. And and what and what Machen wanted Vintel to do was what he saw Vintel doing at Princeton. Machen had Vintel. Uh, teach apologetics at Princeton mm-hmm. and Van Til was asked to teach another year, even after Machen left and, and, and Van Til got Machen's advice. And, and he said, Machen said, no, you're probably not going to be very comfortable at Princeton anymore. So he said not to do it. But, but so, so, you know, the bit kind of one of the burning questions was Machen a presuppositionalist. Well, that's kind of anachronistic because nobody was using that phrase or that term. It was, it was actually a sort of pejorative term that was thrust on the Van Til in the forties. But the point, the point is Van Til was at a unique time and place. And he was trying as best he could to develop a reformed apologetic, a more consistently reformed apologetic. Yeah. So, so much of what he says and does is in my, this is my own view is necessarily sort of blunt and extreme because he's trying to make a point that there's too much autonomy creeping in to much of our theology, and we've got to rid ourselves of all the human autonomy that can be present even in reform circles. He had experienced that himself at, at Princeton. He loved his time at Princeton. He speaks uh, so in praise of William Britton Green Jr. because mm-hmm. he loved the man as a professor, but, but Green was a common sense realist. So, so Van Til saw the kind of inconsistencies in, in old Princeton at, you know, he got his THM at the seminary and then got his PhD at the university. So he was schooled in the ethos of Princeton from both sides. And it was the one place when Machen, you know, started Westminster and wanted it to be a continuation of old Princeton. The one place that that could not happen was in apologetics because Van Til saw some real yeah. gaps in apologetics. He loved Hodge. He loved Warfield. He loved William Green Jr. But he also saw areas that need to be corrected. So I think one of the reasons why Van Til triggers so many negatives in so many people is because at his place in time, he was developing something that nobody had yet developed in quite that way. He wasn't mm. wholly original by any stretch because he depends on Bob Inc., Warfield, Hodge, et cetera, Kuiper. But, but he was saying things in an apologetic context to try to emphasize the fact that we got we have to rid ourselves of all autonomy. So mm. that's one of the reasons why he says, you know, his one of his famous, uh, infamous statements, the unbeliever can't know anything. What does he mean by that? Well, you've got to have a context for that. You know, how do you think about knowledge? And what does it mean for God to be the presupposition of everything that anyone knows? You know, all those kinds of things. And he's just trying to make those statements over and over again so that we can recognize you can't let the nose of the of the autonomous camel into the tent or pretty soon the whole camel's going to be in. And, yeah. and I think that's why Van Til gets one of the reasons why Van Til gets such a negative reaction. It's unfortunate. If you read him in context, you say, okay, now I get what he's after. It's not yeah. quite that extreme, but he's making a point. Yeah. And it was kind of a wild, wild west going on, uh, even in reform circles, depending on who you ask, people will be like, well, yeah, well, Carl Barth was saying a lot of the same stuff. And my old, yeah. my old professor, uh, uh, Van Hooser, 
likes to see oh. a unity there. And I used to go to off, all his office too. hours and just be like, yeah. Dr. Vanderser, no, you need to drop Bart, man. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I was a little late to the game, but. Yeah, yeah well, you know, and Van, and Van Til was very hard on Bart, and some say too hard on Bart, and I'll leave that to, to the readers. But again, sure. what he was trying to show was, you know, the Romer brief was one thing, but then when you get into the to the dogmatics, to the dogmatics, it becomes a bit of a different thing. Bart is shifting, mm-hmm. and Van Til, see, you know, if you he's got, I, I remember walking to his study at his house, and 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 he had the books behind him, and over on the side was the whole uh, all the editions of of the dogmatics in German and, wow. and uh, it was bound in white. And he said, yeah, I call that my white elephant in the room. And it's just there. And, and, you know, I pulled some of those volumes out and it has all of his marginalia over there, which now the volumes are now in the library at Westminster. But what you see is this is a man who read the whole thing thoroughly, mm-hmm. partly because Machen had asked him to do it. And he read the whole thing thoroughly. And then he wanted to write as concisely as he could about the problems. And then, you know, he cites um, Ibid, Ibidim, Ibid, Ibid, because he's just going through the volumes as he writes. So whether he was too hard on Bart or not, the point is there's a reason why Bart is called neo-Orthodox and not Orthodox. And that's the point Van Til's trying to make. Don't be duped and fooled by the language. Scripture is the word of God, Bart says. Well, what does he mean by word of God? Well, it's not what historic Reformed theology is meant by that. Right. Yeah, that's that's so great to be able to look over that uh, that that marginalia as well. That, that'd be cool to, to make a trip out there. And some, some people might say, you know, this is like... Uh, this is like reformed relics or something. Uh, yeah. But the same, the same, the, the same folks will will go visit the Wade Center in Wheaton College and and look over yeah. uh, C.S. Lewis's marginalia. So, well, it's know. historical research, isn't it? And we and we appreciate these guys. And and uh, I have a friend who went through uh, Van Til's copy of uh, of Bobbing's um, dogmatics and you know got the marginalia there and kind of listed it. And it's nice to see what he's thinking while he's reading Bob Inc, you know, in the Dutch, it's just, it's helpful to, to have that kind of research. Yeah, totally. I, I lost you there for a second, Dr. Elephant. I'm going to, okay. Um, no, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it. It'll be fine. Uh, cool. We can okay. just cut that. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> another thing I wanted to, to kind of broach and get your opinion on, uh, why people don't like Van Til, especially in apologetics communities from, from what I've seen, um, now I'm studying philosophy. I studied you know, uh, theology at TEDS. Now I'm working on a philosophy religion degree. And there's a big contrast uh, in the sources that people use. In theology, people are much more uh, happy to talk about Heidegger and to use continental sources. And in philosophy, they're like, what? No, I will never yeah. use that. Uh, and I wonder, <laughs> the apologetic, modern <clears throat> apologetics is very influenced by analytic philosophy and all the analytic uh, philosophers of religion. I wonder, um, do you, th- I, I think that maybe because Van Til writes more in a continental style and uses continental, uh, sources and, and is talking to continentals, perhaps, uh, that's why some people are like, you know, he's so hard to understand. I hear this all the time where people say, you know, he, English wasn't his first language. I, I haven't found him that hard to understand, but perhaps that's because I've had your footnotes this whole time. Um, but what, what do you make of that, that distinction between continental and, and analytic and, and maybe Van Til inheriting some of that beef. Yeah, it's a good insight, um, Parker. I, I, you know, um, when you think about analytic theology, when did it begin? Um, yeah. if, if, you know, if you want to pinpoint it around the time of Moore and Russell, um, 
or may, maybe before that, but but Vint, but but it was it hasn't been as prominent in in the Anglo world um, for that long, right. all told. So so what Vintil is dealing with in his in his philosophy degree at Princeton University is philosophical idealism, which is Kantian, Hegelian, Neo-Kantian, post-Hegelian, Husserlian. You know, it's all of that kind of um, uh, thinking, Kierkegaard, uh, Sartre, the existential uh, folks. And and there really wasn't that much going on in analytic theology when Van Til's writing. I asked Van Til one time, I remember, we, you know, one of the things he would have me do whenever I either he, he would stay with me, he came down to Texas one time, or I would stay with him in his home. Uh, when I was looking for housing up here to become a student, and he would say, you have to go on my, on my walk every day. And he'd walk okay. about two miles every day at a pretty good clip. And so we're walking one time, and, and I remember asking him, um, how come you didn't do much with, with analytic uh, philosophy when you were writing? And he said, you know, I really don't understand that stuff. Why don't you do it? So it was just, you know, I'm just, I'm just not that interested. Um, and I think I think much of what Van Til has done is easily translatable into analytic um, philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think James Anderson, you've had him on. He's yeah. a good he's a good example of a, of a man who kind of thinks more that way. Greg Welty's another, yeah. and they and they can kind of put those those ideas of Van Til into an analytic uh, philosophical context if need be. I did a little bit of that. Um, in my book uh, on um, Christian philosophy, trying to trying to think more uh, large scale about Christian philosophy, yeah. uh, creator creature distinction, beginning with that and interacting with planning a sum. I wrote my dissertation on planning as epistemology. So I, I see that that you know there's not as much in in Van Til per se that's analytic, but to me it's it's almost seamless to bring it over into an analytic context. Yeah, you've got to get rid of some of the terminology. But um look, you're dealing with the same questions, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. And when you're dealing with those questions, you can do it in in various venues, I think, relatively easily. Tom Notero was the first I ever saw in his THM dissertation, which became Van Til and the use of evidence. Yeah. He really got into the analytic uh, philosophy side and wanted to try to translate some of Van Til. And I thought he did a nice job in that book. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I would commend that book to everyone. Uh, ironically, the uh, the idealists are starting to win win back out uh, in physics and AI and mm. stuff like that. So they're, they're coming back around. People are coming back to German idealism, even, you know, British idealism. Some of the folks at Van Til is interacting with Bozen Q and, oh. and Bradley. So, yeah, Bradley, so, yeah. He might, it just, might just come full circle and people won't, well, you know, we'll go, we'll have to translate back into the continental language. Which is, yeah. Well, it almost has to, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. philosophers don't have a lot of places where they can go. So you're going to have to begin to start recycling things um, mm-hmm. when, when you start dealing with this. So, and some of those ideas um, are actually very helpful if you bring them over into a Christian context. So yeah, yeah it'd be nice to see a sort of resurgence. Yeah. Well, so I, w- I wanted to talk about this book. Uh, it's awesome. The, a Christian Theory of Knowledge. And it's this is the new edition. Um, just for the folks at home, like what, what is this book? Is this a, an epistemology book, like philosophy of knowledge? Is it a theology of knowledge? Is it an apologetics? You know, Van Til says it's a it's a good follow up to his defense of the faith. But what right. how do we think about this book? Yeah, I think somebody it, it might have been Bonson who said this, that um 
it's one of those books that the title tells you nothing about the contents. Uh, I think, I think most, most of Van Til's books are like that. You know, it's like the opposite, yeah. like systematic theology yeah. is like prolegomena. You know, it's like philosophy. I instead. know. Yeah. Yeah. So why do they entitle it that? I think that was Van Til's title. Originally, the two, Defense of the Faith and Christian Theory of Knowledge, were kind of put together um, mm. way back in the day. And then he divided because he wanted to write Defense of the Faith to answer some of his critics. He wrote that in the 50s, and some of the critics from Calvin Forum, et cetera, had come after him. And so he wanted to respond to that and then put the Christian Theory of Knowledge stuff aside. So, yeah, it's meant to be a supplement. Uh, to defense of the faith. And one of the reasons I wanted to annotate it is because I think it gives a very nice historical and theological slash philosophical overview of what Van Til was trying to do throughout his career. So some of the original material in there on the historical, he goes through the, uh, you know, ancient church, uh, some of the, some of the church fathers, obviously into the medieval period, but then he wants to address the modern as well. Some of the early church material was from a course that he taught at Westminster for years in four sections called Christianity and Conflict. So he would sort of take some of that material, Christianity and Conflict in the early church, medieval church and modern contemporary. He would take some of that material and sort of bring it out and develop it and revise it. So it's in, in my in my own personal view, when people ask me, what do you read? Uh, if you're going to read Van Til, what do you read? I tell them, start with Defense of the Faith. Mm pick up Christian theory of knowledge, finish with common grace in the gospel. And if you get those three, you pretty much have uh, all of Van Til's career wrapped up in, in terms of his, the ideas that he's wanting to set forth. The one that's most neglected in my view is common grace in the gospel. Mm. Um, that was so important to Van Til that he worked on that material throughout his entire career uh, from the thirties uh, right through. I think, I think the last essay in that book is, is one of the last things Van Til wrote. Because he was so interested in helping people recognize there's more to Reformed theology than just the antithesis. That has to be there. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's no other place to be. That's that's fundamental. But then, so what about the bridge? How do we think about the bridge between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ? Well, common grace helps yeah. us understand that properly without sort of moving over to some sort of religiously neutral context, we can still understand that God is involved in the whole world, not just in those who are in Christ. So that's a very important, the common grace issue is a very important issue for people to get if they're going to understand Van Til properly. Yeah, that's that's funny you mentioned those ones. Uh, I, I think you're probably right. Maybe that's just because I've read your stuff so much. But my, my two favorites are Intro to Systematic Theology and uh, a survey of Christian epistemology. Yeah, like I, I used yeah. to. I got so many of these because I I got obsessed and I would just collect them on eBay. But uh, <laughs> that's the same way. That's that's where he goes in on transcendental arguments, and that's been like a huge part of my life is just trying to. I, I see Van Til is kind of like the oracle saying, you know, here's here's where we need to go, and I'm trying to follow up on that, like you know James Anderson, some of the other folks. Yeah, so well, those are my two favorites. But I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, if I get to annotate another book, if I if I get to a point where I can do that, Survey of Christian Epistemology would be the next one I would want to do because I yeah. think you're right; it's very important. And he defines the terms at the beginning, which right. is very helpful. Yeah. And it was actually initially entitled Metaphysics of Apologetics, is one of the first things he wrote back in the day. Mm. And then the the title changed, but the material sort of stayed the same. It's a very important book. Yeah, well, that that touches on something. Um, this has been a while back for you, I think. But uh, when I first got to TED's, I went to their journal department uh and i saw this all these journals so i would just stay in there and, and photocopy 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 and i found uh one of your essays 
on like Vantil's. It might have been about like the consistency of Vantil's apologetic or something. Yeah. You were talking about the his early usage of transcendental arguments and how he used that like way back in his career. Do you have that on top of your mind? Can you help us with that? Yeah, I'll tell you what happened um, there. Um, There was when when I was a student here, there was a kind of movement that might be too strong a term, but there were a, a group of people including a, a, a couple of faculty and some students who were saying, who were trying to make the case that Van Til's methodology substantially changed over the course of his career. And, and, and the, um, uh, to try to be fair to them, um, I think they were concerned about the language Van Til had begun to use and then decided not to use. And, and one of those and these, let me just say, these are. Um, this was kind of a Doyavirdian critique. Okay. Um, now, if you you know if you know Doyavird, he's very much into the transcendental uh, approach um, to the way he thought about things. I actually did my master's thesis on a comparison of Van Til's transcendental approach and Doyavird's, and awesome. and, and um, wanted to t- try to dive into that. And what what happened then is that people said that Van Til dropped his transcendental approach and became much more of a biblicist. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, these were back in the day, you know, that, that term is now thrown around for people who like to quote scripture. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) unfortunately, but um, back then it was, it was, it was also more of a pejorative term, a a kind of uh, another way to say fundamentalist or something, you know, that he had become less thoughtful. So what I wanted to do was kind of dig into Van Til's writings and say, look, has he, has he really changed substantially? And my conclusion was, no, he hadn't. The language did change. Um, I, and and I, I was never able, Van Til was, was gone by this point. I was never able to ask him exactly why. But in Survey of Christian Epistemology, he uses the term transcendental. He defines it. Um, and I think it's a, it's a nice way of co-opting what Kant was trying to do, bring it into its proper context of Christianity and say, look, it's the impossibility of the contrary. You've got to be able to understand that as a Christian, I thought that was very useful when I first read it. He, he, he doesn't use the term much as I remember, um, yeah. I'm going on memory now, but I think he, he sort of drops the term in the early forties, uh, maybe the mid forties. And all of a sudden this, this idea of presuppositionalism comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, now that was a term, you know, that was sort of foisted onto him, uh, by, by Buswell in a critique. And, and Van Til just took it on. My, my own view, I tell my students, please don't use the word in my presence because I think it's it's not a it's not a useful word. It's yeah. too ambiguous to be helpful. And but but he he began to use that word presuppositionalism, and that just sort of um, stayed for a while. And then when when uh, Jerusalem and Athens um, is is being written, and Van Til's responding. One of the uh, contributors is Herman Doiveard, and Doiveard has a pretty substantial critique of Van Til, calling him a rationalist. At that point, Van Til begins to use the word again when he responds to Doiveard and said, wait a minute, let's let's talk about what transcendental actually means. Yeah. Is it a sort of three-step thing all the way all the way back to naive experience where coherence uh, resides, according to Doiveard? Or is it something that uh, helps us recognize the impossibility of the contrary relative to Christianity. It, 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 Christianity is true. Therefore, by definition, everything else is false. So the point I was trying to make was there's consistency there. Even the language changes throughout. Yeah. My best guess is he dropped the term transcendental, partly because uh, people were misunderstanding it, partly because he was 
attempting to be more uh, theologically oriented rather than philosophically oriented. Yeah. Um, there's a little little pamphlet here at Westminster that he wrote. It's kind of um, not 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 quite this, but it's kind of retractions that he wrote at, toward the end of his career. Huh. And he's saying, you know, in uh, part of that, he says people have understood me to be philosophical in the first place and then biblical second, secondly. And he said, I, I just want, you know, I would like for everyone to know if that's, if that's the case, they've misunderstood me because everything I've tried to say has presupposed a self-attesting Christ of scripture. And that's really where I've wanted to begin. And he says, if I haven't been clear on that, then that, that's my fault. So I, that might've been one of the reasons why he thought the word, the term transcendental might not be as useful as he moved on in his career, but he was still transcendental in his approach, even if he didn't use the term. Yeah. And, and I, I was just so fascinated of how early he used that term because in, in continents, transcendental deductions, and then it kind of goes dormant and, and Peter Strassen brings it into the uh, analytic world, but Van Til was there first calling it transcendental arguments and yeah. giving, giving a, you know, exact same definition that Strassen and some of the other folks use and he, he yeah. calls it spiral reasoning which I thought was so helpful and and, helpful. Uh, and in in the survey of Christian epistemology gives this analogy that like very few Vantillians use but it's the diving board analogy where he says you know you look down and you're on the, the tip of a diving board and so you you can reason that there is uh, ground that this thing is uh, is tied to and it's the same one mm -hmm. as the house analogy and the floorboards but yeah. I just love the diving board so much yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. Well, so uh, in this in this book, um, another another cool thing about your annotations is that each book of Antil uh, of Antil's is different. He's using different tools. He's still commending the same faith. He's still talking about the ontological trinity, but he's, he does different things in different books. And in this one, you in the intro mentioned that he's picking up on Arthur Lovejoy's uh, book, The Great Chain of Being. He he pulls these three these three principles or these three tools from Lovejoy, critiques them, and then says, "Here's how you know a reformed uh, theologian might use these." So it's the principle yeah. of plenitude, the principle of uh, continuity, and the principle of discontinuity. Uh, can you can you lay the, what what the heck are these words? Yeah, yeah, good. You know, this was uh, this was fun for me because when I reread Christian Theory of Knowledge uh, for the purpose of annotating it, I, I don't know how many times I've read it before, but it was fun to to get back into it again, because whenever I try to annotate these things, I try to think about what was I thinking when I was first mm. getting into Van Til, because the first thing I read was Defense of the Faith, like I told you. And then after that, in that book, there was a list of all of his publications at that point. So I just went down the list and ordered all of them. I just ordered the next one and then the next, mm. one, the next one. So I was just reading this stuff because I couldn't get enough of it and also because I was trying to understand it better. Um, and Christian theory of knowledge was one of those. Um, and and what when I when I reread it for the for the for the purpose of annotating it, it really struck me that he is he's really honed in on the principle of discontinuity and principle of plenitude. But he doesn't tell you explicitly why that's so important to him. So I went back to the Christian conflict material, the syllabus material, and it's very explicit there that he's dependent to some extent on Lovejoy's uh, cha Great Chain of Being book, which, by the way, in the 20th century was massively influential. I mean, it was, hmm. you know, people, there were people who uh, thought, oh, you know, the guy's uh, too broad, he's too general to be helpful, he's not really getting into the weeds like we like to do. But that was his purpose, was to be broad in general, to try to give an overview of the history of Western thought, which is a massive topic. 
And he, and when you're going to do that, you have to be general and Lovejoy was purposely general. So when you're going to be general like that, of course, you're going to miss some weeds and there might be some places where you need a little bit more nuance, but because he was so general and sort of uh, looking at the whole picture, Van Til locked into this because that's the way Van Til himself thought. Mm. Um, and, and he began to read uh, Lovejoy and, and Van Til was already uh, up to speed on the chain of being that the material he'd learned at Princeton in his philosophy study. So what Lovejoy is, is wanting to argue is, and this is not, a, a, you know, a, a, an argument that's, um, that's in any way just kind of isolated in a corner. This is, this is a big deal out there in Western philosophy, particularly any philosophy that's dependent on the Greeks. So Lovejoy wants to argue that in a Platonic construction, if, if the good is actually good, then uh, by necessity, there must be an emanation of everything possible. Because if, if the good um, does not emanate something that's possible to, to emanate, then he can't be good because there's a possibility unfulfilled. And why would it be unfulfilled if good is absolute goodness? Now that you can see how that might translate into a Christian context. Not, not that I would uh, agree with this, but you can see how people might say, well, then if God is good, then everything that he creates is uh, a sort of emanation of who he is. And he leaves no possibilities unactualized. Yeah, good so is like diffusive you know, of itself or something I've heard some people say. Exactly. Yeah. So there can't there can't be a gap, you know, a gap. I mean, this is different from we're not talking about sublogics here, but there can't be a gap in, in terms of what God might possibly do because he must actualize all possibilities. Right. In that actualization, then there's going to be continuity from the top down, but there can't be identity of continuity from the top down so there also has to be some element of discontinuity and and bentil sort of shows i think from love joy how aristotle kind of hones that a little bit and gets in more to the into the principle of discontinuity even than plato or neoplatonists had done hmm. so what's going on there what's going on there is the principle of continuity is the rational principle because there's a link between the ultimate, whatever you want to call that. So let's say in a platonic, there's a link to the good and goods, good things that are down here. All right. Yeah. That's, that's pretty basic in Platonism, but there's, but there can't be an identity, uh, a univocal notion because then whatever is good here is identical to the good there. Yeah. So, so because there can't be an identity, there has to be some element of discontinuity and the element of discontinuity typically comes in at the point of contingency. Because the good can have no point of contingency, right? Yeah. Um, if he does, if he does, then there's some possibility he wouldn't be, and that he can't be who he is, or it can't be what it is. Mm-hmm. So there's contingency sort of inserted into the principle of continuity, which then becomes the principle of discontinuity. Van Til likes to play this out both in the in the in the non-Christian context. You know, how do you how do you ever bring these together? Yeah. Until's point is you can't. It remains a fundamental dialectic, and it's going to be, as he likes to put it, rational, irrational, which yeah. I think is one of Van Til's best insights. Then you can transfer this if you want to. He's just saying if you want to transfer this into a Christian context and recognize that there's a Christian principle of continuity, discontinuity, 
which is not irrational because it doesn't resolve itself in a fundamental dialectic, but it resolves itself in the coherence of the mind of God in the first place, which yeah. is just a beautiful way to say, look, folks, the only way you can get what you want here is if you presuppose the Christian God, the ontological trinity, where continuity and discontinuity meet coherently in the being and mind of God. Yeah. So that's what he's that's what he's trying to do all throughout Christian theory of knowledge. So, you know, for someone to say there's not much there on the Christian theory of knowledge is in one way right, but in another way it's wrong because he's giving you all the foundations you need for an actual Christian theory of knowledge which need to be and can be developed much farther than Van Til did. Yeah, that's a, that's such a great point. So I think Van Til, um, I think his criticism is when it comes to, so you got this, you got the principle of plenitude and you, I'm glad you went with the Platonic Platonist view. Cause that's a little bit easier to understand. Like it has to, it's diffusive of itself. There's plenitude that it has to actualize. Uh, there can't be any unactualized uh, potential possibilities. Yeah, 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 exactly. So everything has to be actualized. There you go. So you get this continuity, but it, there has to be discontinuity because um, the good isn't like imminent in all of its things. And that's, that's Plato's yes. whole thing. Like there's this realm of the intelligible world where it's pure and good. Yeah. And you actually see real circles. You don't find those here. So there has to be discontinuity. Yeah. But I think Van Til mentions that like this all is uh, it's like necessitarianism or it's like a hard determinism because uh, God wouldn't be if God's the good, uh, then he wouldn't be free to create. It's just it's emanation yeah. like neo Neoplatonism. And so that's where that irrational, rational, uh, rationalist, irrationalist dialectic comes in where you're constantly pivoting between the two. Right. Yeah, good. Exactly right. Because if the good is good, then necessarily he will, it will actualize all possibility. There's no choice if it's yeah. going to be good right. that it, so that it must do this. And again, this is where Van Til was so brilliant in his critique of any kind of idealism because he said, look, in, in idealistic philosophy, idealist philosophy, whatever you uh, pinpoint as absolute is absolute only because of what it is over against the relative. Oh, yeah. And if it's defined by the relative, it can't be itself absolute because now it needs something outside of itself in order to be what it is. Yeah. That's what happens in Platonism and Neoplatonism. The good necessarily has to emanate, has to emanate yeah. so that what it emanates is all uh, possibilities now actualized. That's ne necessitarian. That's deterministic. But oh, by the way, since it comes to us in this world, there has to be some contingency, yeah. but the good cannot participate in any way in that contingency and still be the good. So the contingency is the irrational part of yeah. the necessitarian determinism. Yeah. And so for the analytic folks, it's just he, he, he's playing on a modal collapse and saying everything becomes necessary. But but you yeah, have to have exactly. this you have to have contingency in order for the system to work. So you can't have a modal collapse and contingency so that the, exactly. the system can't work. Yeah, that's just so right. And see, again, when Van Til uh, highlights the ontological trinity, we've always held in theology that God's decision to create is a predetermination. Mm -hmm. um, now, some people want to call that contingency in God. And, you know, you can fight about whether that is or isn't. But what but what we know is it's not necessary. Creation is not necessary. And every determination of God downstream from creation is also not necessary. Right. So. 
there, there's no modal collapse there unless you think that necess- that the necessity of God is sort of a blank necessitarianism rather than the ontological trinity making decisions, yeah, determinations. I think, I think that's so good. So, so we got a little continental language. We got a little analytic for for those folks who are lost. It's it's the same kind of thing when someone says, um, you, "You you can't know the good without the bad." It's like, well, that's that's not true. Adam and Eve knew good before the bad was there. Uh, before God created the world, there was good, and the the persons of the Godhead knew each other, knew good without evil. So it's the same kind of thing here where it's like, well, no, to have good, you'd have to have this diffusion of itself, but then you either get eternal creation or eternal generation. The world's Mm -hmm. always existed, or you get this weird idea that good has to be diffusive of itself, but there was a time where it wasn't. And it's like, it's just unstable. And I think that's, that's a great point that Van Til uh, hits on. I love the rational, irrational dialectic terms. I've learned to try and yeah. uh, dress those up and kind of hide them. Don't tell people that word because that, that freaks everyone <laughs> yeah. out. But so I just do it, it without without using the language. I, or I try to. Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's one of his best insights. The, the way I talk about it in in uh, covenantal apologetics, and I'm trying to what I'm trying to do in that book is is theologize some of Van Til's philosophical language. So I use the same kind of dialectic, but I call it the census suppression dialectic. So you have the census divinitatis, which is the knowledge of God that all people have by virtue of God revealing himself dynamically in and through everything that's made, including internally and externally. So that's the census. That's going to be a sort of rational, but then the suppression is going to hold that census down. It can't do it completely. It can't annihilate the census, but it's going to suppress that so that there's an irrational that comes in on it. So if you take, for example, Paul's uh, using the, the Greek poets in Acts 17, let's just say the first one was Epimenides, in him we live and move and exist. There's a census suppression or rational irrational there because Epimenides wants to posit some sort of universal to which everything's going to refer. All right, good for him. He knows that there needs to be some sort of reference there. It can't just be meaningful in and of itself by itself. But guess what? The in him, the him, is meant to refer to Zeus. Now, there's the irrational because Zeus himself was dependent on uh, his parents and other things. He, you know, he wasn't just in and of himself who he was. So you've got the irrational in referencing Zeus, but the rational in understanding there needs to be a universal something. There's a census suppression or rational irrational dialectic there. By the time Paul uses the statement, he's already poured biblical content into the referent, which is him in him. So the in him in Acts 17 refers to the God that he's just proclaimed and explained and no longer to Zeus. And so he's using the same sort of overview of Epimenides, but instead of a rational, irrational now becomes reference to the true God. Yeah. Well, so I I think that that's really helpful in understanding what Van Til means when he uses presuppositions. And you had a great footnote uh, on like page three or something in the new book, but it talks about uh, there's subjective and objective presuppositions. And so like, in a sense, like if, if God created the world, then uh, in some sense, we're all, everything's going to be in reference to him. And so there's certain like objective presuppositions that we can't help but act on. Like we, we treat each other as if we're made in God's image and stuff, even if we don't yeah. subjectively presuppose that that exists because, because we're choosing to believe certain things, but certain other things just force themselves in on us because we live in God's world and we're his creatures. And I think that's a major confusion that people who use the presuppositional language, even people who call themselves presuppers on the internet, 
there it's like you know we're not we're not only talking about the subjective one that does sound like postmodernism. <clears throat> just choose the worldview that's best for you i choose this one volitionally yeah. and it's like well we're, we don't want to be doxastic voluntarists we're saying there is a yeah. certain objective set that pushes itself in on you absolutely and this is a really good point um parker i you know um it, Part of the problem is Van Til never defined what he meant by presupposition. You have to read him to kind of get what he's after. And typically, when we talk about presupposition, we usually think about subjects who are presupposing something. Van Til uses it also in terms of a state of affairs or an objective situation. His his wonderful illustration is, and he he actually saw this when he was on a train. He's, He's riding on a train and there's a little girl there sitting on her daddy's lap and she's slapping him in the face. And Van Til says, well, there it is. Um, There's no possibility of the little girl slapping, i.e. denying her father, unless he's supporting her on his lap. Now that's the objective presupposition that Van Til wants to continue to press on us in order to say and, and help us recognize as Christians, God is who he says he is. We all live in God's world with the same God ruling and we're all image of God. And so whether you believe that or not, that's presupposed in everything that you say and do. So Greg Bonson was a master at this, you know, in some of his debates and someone would show up, an atheist would show up and he'd say, thank you for showing up for the debate. You've just proven the existence of God. Hmm. Meaning you couldn't even have this debate. There couldn't even be coherence between us unless the God uh, who reveals himself in scripture is who he says he is. And we're, we're image of God um, creatures of his so that the very coherence of the debate presupposes his existence. That's the objective side of it. Yeah. And then the subjective side is when we get into to real issues of, of what people actually believe. I actually had people telling me, now this has, this has been a, a, you know, a good while, but when postmodernism was first sort of on the rise, People were saying, hey, wasn't wasn't Van Til the first postmodern? And, I, you know, I remember asking somebody, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, Van Til says every fact is an interpreted fact. And that's what postmoderns are saying. You know, you take a fact and you create your own world. Stanley Grins, you know, was the, the yeah. great um, example in a, in a Christian context, uh, you know, a pastor who sort of um, moved into this. I met Stanley one time. He's a, he's a dear uh, fellow, but he just he just got duped by postmodernism. And, and they would say Van Til's a postmodern because he says every fact is, is an interpreted fact. And I would say, wait a minute, <laughs> you're taking that out of context. Van Til means every fact is a God-interpreted fact. Or to put it this way, every fact is a created fact such that what God has in his mind, he then speaks into existence and then providentially sustains by his power. And so in that sense... This this is what it is because God has made it and preserved it and sustains it. And then my responsibility, your responsibility, every human creature's responsibility is to think God's thoughts after him. Yeah. That's there because God made it. That's God's interpretation of what was in his in his mind. So that means that all facts are rooted in the character of God and are not in the first place subjectively interpreted or understood. That's the second part. So creatively constructive, that's God. Receptively reconstructed, that's us. Yeah. And and then it's just, we're thinking God's thoughts after him and his thoughts created the world. So someone who who really helped me with this, who is not a Christian any longer, uh, but I pray for him all the time, is Paul Maxwell, one of your students. And he wrote a paper for you, yeah, yeah, um, which ended up in uh, Philo. 
I believe the journal and it's an amazing paper, man. It's so good. Oh, I had him on to talk Paul about is a very bright fellow. Yeah. I'm sorry for the direction he's taken. Yeah. Same. Um, for those who know Paul, like you, you guys know that he could become a Christian tomorrow too. You know, he's, that's just kind of how he is. Yeah. So, so pray for him. I love that dude. I hope um, the Lord will continue to hound him because he, definitely. he knows better. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So, um, yeah, the, the, fact of all facthood type stuff uh, van Til uses this language and i i really like that in this book he uses it a lot and i like that because uh my favorite c.s lewis book is miracles and it's because he does the same, same kind of thing and i gave a uh, i wrote a paper for van Hooser, uh where i gave a van Tilian reading of the first six books of uh miracles because he's doing well, a, a really similar thing i think van Til would not like me saying that and he'd say well he's not explicitly uh, you know, biblical about his view, but they're, they're same kind of thing. He, instead of using yeah. the dive, diving board analogy or the house with the floorboards, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about a lily pond and says like, we can look at these lilies that are floating and we, we know that there has to be a foundation to the pond. There has to be a ground because they're going all the way down. And it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. They both are even using Very metaphors good. and then explaining. And exactly. I, yeah. I love that view. Yeah, I do, too. Yeah, it's interesting. I was in the archive, Bantel archives a number of years ago, and I was just looking through letters of Bantel, et cetera. And I pulled one out and it was from C.S. Lewis. And it was just a quick little thing. And it said, Dear Dr. Van Til, thank you very much for sending me your books. And then he assigned C.S. Lewis. So, you know, Van Til was like, you need to read my stuff. Yeah. And, you know, this was part of Van Til. He, he wanted everybody to be fully on board. And I, and I understand that, that, that passion in his yeah. life because he was trying so hard to, to, to rid the church of autonomy in all, in all areas. But um, as you, as you mentioned, the, the more I read Lewis, the more I recognize, you know, number one, he's not he's not a theologian in the technical sense. Number two, he's very deep and rich when it comes to the way that he expresses some of his theology. And so you can meld that together uh, with what Van Til was doing and you can see continuities there. You yeah. know, his great praise, I, I believe in son, not because I see it, because by it, I see everything else. Right. Well, that's Van Til. I mean, he could have made that statement easily. That's Van Til makes one really thought. close. Yeah, I think yeah. even in this book, he uses a sun analogy and, and candles, and it's really yeah, similar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, similar. Same, same sort of thing. So, you know, whenever guys are at their best, brilliant guys are at their best, they're going to be very close to what Scripture says and therefore to what Van Til was trying to say. That that That's what I think as well. And, and um, I found some, some cool... Uh, reading Lewis's marginalia at, at the Wade Center. I found some cool stuff too oh. about um, Lewis. Lewis, I think he was actually a tutor for F.H. Bradley's grand, grandson or nephew or something. So there's Is that like, right? There's, oh. they're, they're interacting with the same type of people. Connections. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is really cool and fun. I think getting back to the objective precept, uh, objective subjective presupposition stuff, I've learned to just, I, I say preconditions for the objective one. And presuppositions for the subjective one, just just to try and yeah. be helpful, just to try and you know convey uh, his That's point. Helpful. One thing right. that I get uh, hit with by my Christian philosopher friends who want to pu push that uh, postmodern point, they'll they'll go to stuff like you know Lewis uh, or uh, Van Til says that we all have these rose-colored glasses, or actually in this book it's yellow-colored glasses, and he's talking mm -hmm. about John. the uh, the non-believer having them cemented to his face. And they say, look, we're all just stuck in our subjective uh, interpretations. I want to read this quote, actually. The unbeliever is the man with yellow glasses on his face. He sees himself and his world through these glasses. He cannot remove them. His interpretation of himself and of every fact in the universe relating to himself is unavoidably a false interpretation. 
and somewhere else he says they're cemented to his face if he didn't say right that. right um, yeah. so what, what do you make of that because i know um van till had this problem with thomas reed and common sense realism and and that was even for like e- ecclesial reasons because he was he was a presbyterian and so anyone the closer you got to van till being a presbyterian and you're teaching something different like that's a, that's a problem and so yeah. I, I and thomas reed was kind of unorthodox from what i hear in his theology as well um a lot of christian philosophers are like no we want to be common sense realists because we're made in god's image it makes sense that god would make us with this ability to recognize the world um what do you make of that it's again back to the the critique you know that that he was a postmodern i guess yeah boy um yeah so let me see where i can start here um i think the first thing to say is when van Til's using that kind of analogy uh you know one of his famous phrases all is yellow to the jaundiced eye uh-huh. um what he what he's trying to 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 help us recognize um is uh, sin is uh, so dominating in the life of anyone who is apart from Christ and therefore in Adam. Sin is so dominating that even when we say, um, look at that gorgeous tree out the window, an unbeliever will say, yeah, that's a gorgeous tree. But that tree is shaded in yellow because the unbeliever, in terms of his own way of thinking, is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness will not say that tree is what it is because of who God is and what he's done. will not say I am who I am because who, because of what God has done in and through me by making me and giving me life and breath and all things. So that's the jaundice of the, there's a tree, uh, but it doesn't negate the fact that we both agree at this level, there's a tree. The jaundice comes in, in terms of the subjective sin filled way of interpreting those kinds of things. So I think that's the first point. And, and, and Van Til was very clear on this. We need to be clear on this. Um, that only changes when the power of the Spirit of God changes our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh by way of the gospel. And Van Til was, was adamant over and over again, uh, look, um, we all need the gospel. We are all in the same sinful boat. And unless the Lord reaches in and changes our hearts, all is going to be yellow to the jaundice eye. So you don't get over this philosophically. You don't even get over it theologically. You get over it spiritually when God reaches in and changes your heart by, by an act of sovereign grace. That's point number one. Point number two, um, you know, George Marsden has a great article in this um, edited volume back in the 80s called Faith and Rationality that Planning and Wolterstorff edited. Now that, yeah. now, that was kind of planning his first major foray into what he called back then Reformed Epistemology. He later changed it to Proper Function Epistemology. Um, but he's, he's, I think Planning has got 80-some pages in that, and he's really trying to set forth, you know, what he thinks is a, is a Reformed Epistemology. And, and I, I have appreciated much of what Planning has done, even, even with my critiques. But in that volume, Marsden has an article, typical of Marsden, just uh, brilliant and, and, and well, well put. Um, and it's called something like the failure of 19th, mid-19th century evangelical academia. Mm. You know, it's, this is Marsden to kind of, and what's his point? His point is um, that the, the, the Princetonians, for as much as we love them, and I, I do, I love Hodge, I love Warfield, I love all these guys. So nothing here is is meant to negate that point. But but Marsden's point is because these guys were influenced so heavily by common sense realism, 
they were not able adequately to challenge the Darwinian method that that came onto the scene in the late 1850s. And he and he makes that point. I can't make the argument for him here. He makes it very well. But his his bottom line is here's the problem, says Marsden. Common sense was not able to establish what was a matter of common sense. Yeah. So what's the problem there? The problem is if you take common sense realism, once you have an ism, this is where Doivard was so helpful. Once you have an ism, you probably have an idol. So so be careful of the isms. Christian theism is the only non-idolatrous ism, mm. but every other ism can can turn into that if it's not that. Once you have an ism, now that's a bit of an overstatement. So let me just, but once you have that sort of thing, common sense realism what you're doing is you're saying, this is my basic presupposition. And if it's going to be your basic presupposition or your principium or your foundation or your source, however you want to think about yeah. that, once it's that, it's got to bear the weight of everything else downstream from it. And and Marsden's point is common sense realism couldn't do that because it could not conclude what is the content of its own presupposition of common sense. So it failed. You know, in, in a sense, this happens to almost every ism. It, it, it's self-destructed. Mm. It failed by virtue of its own presupposition. So it can't bear the weight of a fundamental principium. Does that mean that common sense never plays any role in anything? No, of course not. Right. And this is one of the reasons why Van Til did so much work on common grace. Why do we all still say there's a tree when there's a tree? Why do we all say the light is red, I'm going to stop? It's not because common sense rules and reigns in the world. It's because God still, in his common grace, restrains the depravity of those who are apart from Christ and allows for the flourishing, however much there is, of the world in various in various circumstances situations. So it's not common sense. It's common grace, which presupposes the antithesis and the reality of who God is, and that all people are covenantally related, either in Adam or in Christ, yeah. and there's no other place to be. So I think that's the that's the way to think about those things, because we, we, we don't want to say, Van Til would not want to say, that when the unbeliever says there's a tree, he's lying from top to bottom. That's not the point. The point is, the only reason he can say there's a tree is because God restrains his sinfulness. And we now we now live in an era, don't we, where facts with respect to certain things like sex and gender aren't so much common sense anymore, are they? And what's the problem? The problem tends to be that because of God's activity in the world, particularly with respect to the way Paul talks about it, people are moving farther and farther away from what ought to be, used to be, has been historically common. That's that's not a problem of, say, postmodernism fundamentally or a problem of, oh, now we're being more progressive. It's a problem fundamentally of the way sin operates in the human heart. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And, and there's a there's a distinction even in epistemology between common sense knowledge and common sense beliefs. And, and in order yes. to know if this is a common sense, an item of common sense knowledge, we have to know you have to get an epistemology, see if it's justified or warranted or however your theory is yeah. going. But but that means it's not so common because you have to have some way of adjudicating. Is this just mere belief or is it is it common sense knowledge? And it does yeah. shift with the culture throughout throughout time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, here's 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 a, uh, a proposition for you, um, Parker. Uh, 
I, I'm I'm more convinced now, um, and I haven't developed this, but I I think because of the census divinitatis, if we if we take what Paul says there seriously, and we recognize this is the inspired word of God, so it's true, mm-hmm. and we recognize that Paul is making a point about uh, universal knowledge that all people necessarily have because they're made in the image of God, so that it, to the extent that you're self conscious, you're God conscious. Yeah. And, and this is actual knowledge of God that Paul's talking about here. Now, you know, you can get into questions of what's the what's the form of that knowledge and how to think about it best. And, you know, we can talk about that if you want to. But if we if we start there, then I think, you know, to, just to use um, Aristotle's phrase, it is fundamental to all human beings to know. Yeah. But it's fundamental to human beings to know God in the first place. Then everything that we're meant to know from that point is meant to be coherent with, line up with that knowledge of God. So instead of starting as as much of epistemology will do with belief and then from belief to true belief and from true belief to justified true belief, whatever the, the you know, whatever the continuum yeah. looks like, depending on the philosopher. But instead of instead of working with that, it's best if we start with knowledge of God and then line up things according to that actual, true, in my view, infallible knowledge, because God gives it to every person. So now we're kind of reversing the order. It's from knowledge to belief to yeah. true belief and understanding how that comports with or whether it comports with the knowledge of God that we all have by virtue of knowing what he has made. Yeah. So so <clears throat> I think it's funny that people uh, hate on Ben Till so much. But if 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 we do go with the sense like that. That's uh, it seems like that's similar to uh, knowledge first epistemology, which is kind of hot right now. Uh, yeah. uh, Williamson is is big on that. He came on the podcast. Uh, there's a lot of folks who go in for knowledge first. Others are going to really hate that. But that's that's a live view right now. So that's this isn't it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing. And uh, so Timothy Williamson, knowledge first. People go check that out as well. Uh, another one would be like Peter Vandenwagen's free will defense. He says. Okay. Um, he says, you know, why, why is there, why is evil distributed the way it is? Well, be, perhaps man was created to be in a constant relationship with God. And so natural evils like hurricanes, maybe those aren't a result of God cursing the world, but maybe those would have happened anyways, but God would have warned people, people, there, there wouldn't be these huge, massive tragedies because we all would have lived in contact with God. We maybe would have had preternatural abilities that have since left us because of the fall and you're like you know say what you will about pvi but most people will respect him and, and in philosophy of religion so if <laughs> yeah. so if, if you go well, he's into, always unique isn't he right right but if, <laughs> yeah. if you're willing to go down that line then you can also go down yeah. the line of, of van till who says hey you know the non-believer is like a buzzsaw but the settings are off and so he's going to cut at an angle yeah. you know and it's like yeah that's what peter van Wagen's saying so i just i always exactly. want to do a, a job of motivating and saying like you know read some van till you know yeah, I think that's very good. I, I'm not familiar with Williamson's work, but you know, but Van Til would would go with the knowledge first, I think, um, and so would Calvin, and so mm-hmm. would Paul, and therefore so would Scripture. But the knowledge first is what it is because of God's activity in us, and not because, first of all, of our cognitive activity. Sure, sure. It it has to be what God does. That that's why that the you know our forefathers called it cognitio incita, implanted knowledge from God, dynamically coming in and through everything that's made. So the reason it's knowledge first is because we're image of God first. And then we sort of distort that and pervert that by way of surprise. Can you say the Latin again? I'll always love when you do this. Yeah, cognitio 
cognitio incita, I-N-S-I-T-A, which just means implanted knowledge. Yeah. Um, and that's the way the Reformed would talk about it because they recognized they didn't like the idea of innate knowledge, although it is innate, but they didn't like that because it was more Cartesian. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to say implanted because that means somebody from the outside coming in, putting that into us. And mm-hmm. it's it's the works of the law written in the heart. It's also dynamically the knowledge of God given in and through all that's made. Yeah, it, it definitely has more of a, a feel of, of a creator and, and less of like a deistic, like, uh, you know, clockmaker exactly. who wound, wound everything up. Yeah. Um, right. He's here. He's present. Uh, Van Til would always want to make the point that our environment, meaning every human environment, is fundamentally in the first place personal, not impersonal. Mm. We stand, whether, whether we're in Adam or in Christ, we stand quorum Deo before the face of God. Yeah. And we have responsibilities as, as uh, his creatures because of that. Yeah, that's awesome. So. A lot of times I think uh, I think you do a good job of speaking to the public because uh, often theologians have are, are speaking to laymen in the church. Um, fortunately for this podcast, I, I started there, but I accidentally my whole audience are master students and PhD students. So we can go uh, into the Latin and, and fun stuff like that. There's the the principiums, the different type of principiums, and I actually think this language helpful yeah. because it is from the Reformed folks uh, back in the days, Reformed scholastics. I know that might be controversial for some, um, but like there's the principium cognoscendi externum and internum, and uh, right. um, the ascendi and cognoscendi. I believe. Can, right. can you lay? I think there's three of them. Can you lay those out for us? Yeah, yeah. So um, the the let's say uh, so. The, the Latin principium was actually a translation of the Greek arche, okay. and that goes all the way back to Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Aristotle knew that, um, so this is nothing new. Aristotle knew that you've got to stand someplace in order to begin to predicate anything, because if you don't, you're predicating ad infinitum all the way back. You know, where are you going to stand? If you don't have a place to stand, yeah. that is what it is as a foundation then you're not going to be able to predicate in the first place. So for Aristotle, that's RK. RK, as you know, in the Greek could mean head, but here it sort of means source. Yeah. And then that, that translates into the Latin as principium. And there are two principia that, that the Reformed would, would highlight with, with, a, with a nuance. Uh, principium ascendi, which means principle or, or better foundation or source of existence. And, and every Christian would say, Every Orthodox Christian would say, that's God. That's the triune God. He is always and everywhere our principium ascending. Um, any, no matter what your apologetic is, I remember R.C. Sproul would say, you know, we agree with Van Til on metaphysics. We disagree on epistemology. But what he's saying is we're, we're in the same place on principium ascending. We have uh, problems on principium cognoscendi. Yeah. So the principium cognoscendi, is, as it sounds, as you can tell, is a foundation for knowledge. And there, the Reformed would make a distinction oftentimes uh, between principium cognoscendi externum, which would be God's revelation. And and I think it's important to include here, God's revelation comes by way of scripture and by way of creation and always has its focus in the preeminent revelation of God in the Son, Jesus Christ himself. So all of that has its focus in Christ. It's not just an abstraction, but it's actually the second person Trinity uh, who has come uh, to save his people. That's the principium external. Principium internum would be the operation of the Holy Spirit in the heart, yeah. by which we then are temples of God because he indwells us and he changes our hearts in order that the blinders can be dropped and we can now see the world and the way God meant us to see it. 
And those are, you know, Mueller makes this point over and over again, which I think is exactly right when you talk about the reform scholastics. Those principia had to be um, universal and indemonstrable. And, and by indemonstrable, what he means is you can't get to a principium back of that. Mm. If you did, it wouldn't be a principium. So this <laughs> right. is Aristotle's arcade. Yeah. So you've got to stand there. It doesn't mean you can't in any way demonstrate it. It just means that you don't use that principium as a, a premise to another inferential process, because then you're all of a sudden going back again, and then you go back and you go back. So that's where we stand. And this is back to Van Til's. Yeah, we stand there. And how do you demonstrate it? The impossibility of the contrary. If I don't stand here, please tell me where I can stand so that I don't sink. And yeah. is there another place to stand? That's sort of the challenge and, and the demonstration of the truth of the Christian position. Yeah. And so so I, I think that the, the Principium uh, Ascendi, the existence, the metaphysics, the ontology mm-hmm. realm, that to me is like, that's the preconditions. These things must be in place. This is God as our yes. precondition of intelligibility, if we want to go there, or predication. And then the Principium uh, cognoscendi externi, externum and, and internum. Is that right? Is that the right? Yeah, that's right. Um, mm-hmm. that, that would be more like the presuppositions in, in the distinction yeah. that I made earlier, where that's, that's the cognitive, yeah. that's the epistemological. Um, Very good. Right. I think yeah. it, it's just, it's just really helpful to, to get clear on these things. Uh, it's, it's helpful. And, and again, if you read Bavink, I mean, Bavink is just all over this yeah, because right. he recognizes this is the way we've got to think as Christians. You know, this goes back to the, you know, the charges that people will give up until circular reasoning, et cetera. That charge was given at, at the time of the Reformation. Uh, Footsius had to address it. Um, he's being charged with circular reasoning. Owen had to address it. He's being charged with circular reasoning. The reason you get charged with that is because you have been explicit about your principium cognoscendi, which is God's revelation. Yeah. And Owen goes on to say, hey, by the way, as he would put it, the papists are actually the ones running in a circle because of the way that they understand the authority of the Pope and the church. So he has a nice way of sort of turning the tables on that kind of thing. But people think, you know, when Van Til talks this way or writes this way, hey, this is brand new stuff. We can't think like this. It goes all the way back to the Reformation. Once you establish, as Calvin did in his genius, that there has to be a principium other than the authority of the councils of the church or the Pope. There's got to be something else. And by the way, it's God's revelation. Once you've got that, then you've got to stand there and you can't move anywhere else. If you do, you sink. Yeah. I was, I was just listening to a, a really famous AI theorist and he was talking about, he's making this joke from one of his mentors or friends that said, uh, circular reasoning, once you brought in and out enough, uh, just becomes coherence and that you actually want that. And I thought that's funny, <laughs> yeah. but then, but then good. Van Til says, he, he says it's spiral because you're spiraling down to the principium. Right. It's so it's not, yeah. it's not just a circle. It's, it's going you're not down. just running in a circle. Right. Right. Yeah. So some people will say, well, look, if you know, you, you Calvinists, why, why would you do apologetics if you think it's, it has to be God who changes the heart? And then why, why should we do presuppositional apologetics? Uh, if you do have a reason for doing apologetics, why not just give evidences? And I always think like, well, um, the same folks, I, I work for a sports ministry and one of our big tenants is audience of one, AO1, that God is our ultimate audience. We compete for his glory. And the same thing is true in everything, whether we eat or drink or play sports or, or do apologetics, you know, we're doing it for God's glory. So even if we think the Holy Spirit has to work in someone's heart, I still want to do this in a way that I think honors God, that I think is supported by scripture. And then secondly, um, the cognis, the principium cognoscendi internum, the Holy Spirit working. Well, how does he do that? Well, does he just flip the light switch? Well, it seems like he uses persuasion and illumination. That's, that's a big one I got from Van Hooser. 
that that's how he's persuading people or he he persuades people in various ways sometimes through apologetics people say you can't you know uh, argue someone into the kingdom well yeah unless it's part of god's plan to use that evidence yeah. and to illumine yeah. illuminate you by the work of the holy spirit through you know yeah. humans sharing the gospel like he told us to yeah well you're um you know you're you're preaching to the choir here <laughs> um i i really appreciate the way you've put this um I've, I've sort of developed now this standard response when, when people will say to me something like, you know, and it's oftentimes it's professionals. Um, they'll say, you know, um, you're, you're a professor of apologetics. You know, you can't argue anybody into the kingdom to which I will say, well, you know, you can't preach anyone into the kingdom and you can't evangelize anyone into the kingdom until and unless the truth of God is expressed and the spirit works by and with that truth mm. in order to change human hearts. So the point I'm trying to make is Ben Till makes this point in Jerusalem and Athens because Fred Howe, who was then a professor at Dallas Seminary, gives this long essay and says part of the problem with Van Till, he just doesn't make a proper distinction between evangelism and apologetics. Van Till basically responds and says, yeah, you're right. I don't because I don't see him as ultimately separate in any way. Mm. There are distinctions to be made for sure. But 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 Van Till was just, you know, like he wanted to say at the end of his career, and he says, the self-attesting Christ of Scripture has always been my starting point. Yeah. So the reason you're trying to defend the faith is not just to change someone's mind about something so that they become presuppositional instead of evidential or right. even agnostic. <clears throat> what you want to do is help people understand the only way properly to presuppose the Christian God and to begin with the ontological trinity is to repent and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then then the blinders fall off. Then all is not yellow because the eyes no longer jaundiced. And, and apologetics is meant to be one avenue, not the only, but one avenue in which you can present those sorts of things. So when you talk to people, for example, and this is a much longer discussion, I know, but when you talk to people about the problem of evil, you know, you can work with what, what you know, the biblical material that scripture gives to you. Um, you can you can talk about natural evils and moral evils and all those kinds of things. And those are important. But fundamentally, that is almost a seamless way to begin to help people understand the reality of the cross. Yeah. I mean, what is the cross if it's not the defeat of all evil at the consummation? It's 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 the Lord saying, I'm taking this so seriously that I'm going to send my son because he alone is able to kill what you guys brought into my good world. Yeah. That's the only way it's going to happen. It's going to happen at the cross. And Jesus is the only one who's going to fix it. And 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 that's the way you need. If you talk about the problem of evil that way, you're moving from just the abstract, which again, I'm not against, but if you just stay there, you haven't done the work. You move from the abstract to the concrete of, oh, by the way, this is the reason the cross happened. You need to understand that point before you, you're going to get the, the the final solution to it. Yeah. Amen. So, so I've read um, a lot of your stuff, a lot of frame stuff. W one thing I used to be like really, really heavy into the uh, triperspectivalism or multiperspectivalism. If you go in for Vern Poitras's view. Um, but one thing that I, that I kept from that was uh, thinking of apologetics as defending, contending, and commending. And there's you know th at least three aspects to it. You're sharing the gospel with someone. As soon as you get pushed back, now maybe you're defending. Or maybe you're going out trying to poke holes in their view of the world. That might be contending. Uh, or you're commending. You're trying to persuade. And um, it, it seems like a lot of apologists will emphasize one or two. Uh, to the neglect of the others and whatever, because God made us differently. You know, I think Van Til was, was 
uh, emphasizing the, the contending portion, saying my this this Christian worldview and not others. Um, yeah. And and reading the old the older, um, a lot of times people just like, hey, newer is better. Let's go in for this imaginative apologetic stuff. But reading the older people, uh, you see that even like their courses, some were philosophical apologetics, some were uh, more like evidential based, but they were like scientific apologetics. Like there was different emphases. I just think that mm -hmm. that's a super helpful way to think about it. Um, but, but the apologist should be able to defend, contend and commend the faith and the, the yeah. commending sometimes gets left off in sharing the gospel. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. Van Til didn't work with that much again, because he was working so hard to try to develop sort of the initial phase into how to think about these things in a reformed context. Yeah. But I've, um, I've tried to do some work, um, what my uh, my latest book is called The Faithful Apologist. And one of the things I'm trying to do there is to talk about the reality of persuasion. And I actually use Aristotle's categories in, when he's uh, writing about rhetoric yeah. of uh, ethos and logos and pathos. And all of those are important. And when I, when I talk about um, ethos, of course, I'm talking about the character of the person. That That's a huge thing. We have to focus on that in the church and recognize that that's that's going to make a difference in the way that we think holiness is very important. Yeah. But then also the pathos part, what I do there is I help people understand that since it's the case that everybody knows God, when, when you approach someone with the truth of God, whether in a, a sort of academic apologetic setting or whether in basic evangelism or in preaching in, in all of those, you're, what you say is going to resonate within them deeply if you're communicating the truth, because God has already communicated and is communicating with them in the first place. So you never meet someone in any sort of discussion apologetically or evangelistically. You never meet someone who is not already a knower of God. And that means that God builds the bridge between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ by way of the census of Benetatis. And so what we're trying to do is reach into that grab onto that and persuasively help people understand why that's important. Again, back to Paul in, in Acts 17, why does he use the Greek poets? Part of the reason, in my view, is because he's persuading. He's saying, you people already affirm these things, yeah. but you've got the wrong view of in him we live and move and exist, or we are his offspring. You affirm that, but let's change the referent. Let's understand this in a, in a theistic, that is Christian theistic way, so that now you recognize, as Paul says, this God commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, all of that, you know, that's sort of the confrontational part. But before that, he gets to the persuasive part, trying to draw people in in a particular way. And this is what Van Til was doing in much of his writing. He got criticized for it. But what he's talking about you know, God is the concrete universal. And the guys in Cal Calvin Forum in the 40s and 50s would say, oh, look, Van Til's just an idealist. He just loves idealism, which is, you know, horrendous because he wrote his dissertation in 1927 against idealism and just flattened it, in my view. Hmm. So what it, why is he saying concrete universal? Because in a Hegelian, neo-Hegelian sense, Hegel hated the Kantian abstract universal because it's up there and irrelevant. So he's going to bring it down into history. And, and the concrete universal is the one that is embedded in history as an absolute, but not in any way identical with history. Yeah. And Van Til's saying, if you want that, the only way you're going to get that is in the Christian God. Yeah. He's embedded as imminent in everything we do, in no way identified with anything that we are, because at no point is he created. 
But he is the one who is here. And, and by the way, he's the only one who's actually absolute because he's not dependent on anything else in order to be who he is. Now, that's a persuasive way of trying to reach people who are searching for or affirming a concrete universal. He did that with a lot of his language, using philosophical language to try to bring the philosopher in. It's a point of persuasion. And I think you're right. We need to be better at commending even as we contend. In, in covenantal apologetics, I talk about it as negative apologetics and then positive yeah. apologetics. So let's let's make sure if we're able to keep both of those in view when we're talking to people. Yeah, I, I, I love all that stuff. I, I've, I've tried to make the point of the concrete universal through uh, commending the author, author analogy or authorial analogy that, that God is like the author, author of the world and he has written himself into the story. And uh, there's certain ways you can think about that. Again, following Ben, who's yeah. Uh, I wonder, so some people are going to be pretty upset by, uh, hey, everyone knows God um, and whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, if people be upset, that's fine. Um, when you say that, I don't want to get in too much because that, that could be a whole you know podcast in and of itself. But we're talking about a Christian theory of knowledge. Do you think of that as yeah. like a is that like a tacit knowledge or, um, you know, do you think it's explicit? Yeah, I I think people are going to think that you're saying like, I know you believe it. sometimes like Cy Tenberg and Kate is like. I know God the same way you yeah. do. And people are like, well, what? What are you yeah. talking about? I don't think I know God. So how do you think yeah. of it, I guess? Yeah, very good. So let me just say one thing. This is not the way that I would approach an unbeliever necessarily. So I'm talking to you and I'm presupposing a Christian audience. And and if, you know, if they're upset with what I'm saying, I would just ask them to go to the exegesis and, and look at, at Romans 1 and, sure. and look at what Calvin's done with that, look what Paul's actually saying. But that's not the way I would initially approach an unbeliever. I wouldn't sure. say, hey, by the way, you know God, you're just denying it, shame on you. Yeah. That's not nothing persuasive about that. Sure. That's number one. Number two, um, uh, Bavink is, is, I think, really good on trying to help us see how to think about the census divinitatis. Um, Grace Utanto, a former student of mine, has done a lot of work on Bob Inc. And I think he's actually written a couple things on this, um, showing how Bob Inc. will incorporate some of Schleiermacher, yeah. not, not, the, not the whole thing, but some of what Schleiermacher's doing in his feeling of dependence mm -hmm. or sense of um, dependence. And, and I think um, what, what Bob Inc. helping us see is that this uh, this knowledge that we have, um, number one, is not necessarily, probably not usually propositional, okay, and has more to do with who we are as human beings and the sense that God gives us of being dependent. We know we're dependent on our parents to be here. We know we're dependent on a lot of things in order to stay alive. So there's this sense of dependence that just resonates with us as creatures, and I think all of that sort of plays into what we mean by the census of Inatatis. One of the examples I've used, and again, um, this may not be a perfect example, but, you know, Russell had this nice little um, way of, of uh, bifurcating knowledge, uh, knowledge by description on the one hand and knowledge by acquaintance on the other hand. And what he meant by knowledge by acquaintance is all that's needed in order to know is the very presence of the thing. You don't need a deduction. You don't need a process of inference in order to know. All you need is the presence. And, and, and Russell was trying to make sense of, look, we have to be, we can't be skeptic. We have to be able to say that there are things that we know just because we know them. Yeah. And so you walk into a room and you say, look at this room. It has a lamp. It has, you can know that without ever inferring or propositionalizing. Yeah. Just directly and I think, with it. Yeah. 
Exactly. And I think that's what Paul's up to in Romans 1. Again, he doesn't tell us, so you have to sort of um, work with what you have in Scripture. But I think what Paul's saying is the very presence of God necessitates the knowledge of God, and there's no reason why you have to propositionalize or infer. You can do that if you want to. It's not that it's anti that, yeah. but it's not that necessarily. One of the examples I've used is my one of my granddaughters. Um, one day when she was here, she's you know four months old. I walk into the house and she gets all excited and she starts smiling and you know jumping. Well, she's not propositionalizing anything. She's not inferring anything. But look, there's there's my grandfather. I know that as sure as I know anything, and she knows who I am. I think it's that kind of presence, that kind of knowledge of God that Paul's talking about, since it is universal and it's given by way of creation. God is present in and through everything that he's made. Yeah. Okay. No, I think that's really helpful. That's a, that's a good example. There, uh, it reminded me a little bit. So uh, reading Van Til has made me like, oh man, uh, Descartes' a villain. And then I read Descartes myself and... I was like, dude, this sounds a little bit like Van Til. And again, Van Til's ro- rolling in his grave right now. But, you know, I, I, I think, yeah. I think therefore I am. And then he goes in for uh, this ontological argument. And it's kind of like a Schleiermachian like dependence where it's like, well, I know I didn't invent myself. And he kind of goes in the same kind of reasoning pattern. And he's not explicitly using scripture. So, again, you know, it's kind of a problem. But um, James Anderson, in one of his lectures, said, you know, not I think therefore I am, but I think therefore the great I am. Or uh, So I, I yeah. looked up the Hebrew in that. I got a tattoo. Let me see if I can see it. Oh, well, yeah, there we go. Yeah, so I, I think hey, therefore... Yeah. Hey, hey, yeah, I share. Hey, yeah. That's right. Nice. I am who I am. Yeah, so I think therefore he, you know, the great I am. And so that's, yeah, it's tattooed on my good. arm. I'm kind of stuck with it. But I've been, I've been trying to make yeah. my own transcendental arguments. Um trying to be faithful to like the, the, the depiction that Van Til's gives, because I think it is biblical. I think it is, you know, a really clear, good way for a Christian to think, and then trying to actually do it in a rigorous, you know, logical way. I, I didn't tell my friends this, but I, I, I presented a paper at EPS, Evangelical Philosophical Society and mm-hmm. Society for Christian Philosophers, where I use uh, this philosopher, Donald Davidson's triangulation argument. And I, and I, it's a transcendental argument in the same vein of Van Til, where I try to argue for the ontological trinity. I just didn't tell any of my Christian philosopher friends that's what I was doing. Yeah, and then once, w- once they said they liked it, then I would say, you know, actually, this was uh, Van Til's stuff. <laughs> that's the way to do it. I love stepping yeah, a little, in on them. A little subversive. Well, you know, I'm glad you're doing that. There's a lot of work that has to be done. Um, you know, I don't think it's that useful anymore just to repeat Van Til, I mean, you need to sort sure. of say, here's what he said, and now here's what he meant, and here's what we can do with it. That's right. what he would have wanted as well. Right. And so, you know, that's why I, I, I've said to some folks at PNR, um, I'm glad you're republishing some of Van Til, but please don't republish anything unless there's some explication there, because mm. we need to go farther, explain, help people grab it, and then use it in so many different contexts. Because if it's biblical truth, it's going to be able to be plugged in in, in all sorts of contexts right. in ways that Van Til never would have thought. Yeah. So so the more rooted we are biblically, and then the more creative we are philosophically and theologically, in the good sense creative, that is moving beyond, uh, then, then the better for the church and the better yeah. for the academy, in my view. And and I think that that just is taking Van Til at what he said. He said you can start anywhere and you can reason to yeah. God with this in the spiral reasoning fashion. Uh, Bonson was like, "Fine, I'll do a toothpaste uh, proof." So I, yeah. one of my professors, Harold Netlin, I love this guy, but he he wasn't a big fan of Van Til when I was at TED's. So he he really wanted to make the case for inference to the best explanation. So I said, "Well, what are the preconditions of inferring to the best explanation?" 
uh, what what kind of worldview must we live in if we're able to? So then I just did the Vantillion move on IDE itself. So it's fine. Yeah, yeah. That's, see, and that's so important. It's back to the common sense realism. We're, we're not going to argue that there are commonalities among all of us, Christian and non-Christian in the world. The question is, what are the preconditions that are required in order for that commonality? Because the commonality cannot be self-explanatory. That was Marsden's whole point. So yeah. we just push people, try to push them a little bit farther to yeah. see you've got to have a foundation here if you're going to posit that. Yeah. Some, sometimes when, when I make this explicit, people go, well, that's not new to Ventil. That's just good philosophy. And I'm like, well, then embrace it. That's great. That's great yeah. then. Okay. Good, good job. Yeah. yeah. So, you don't have to use his name, but just, yeah. just take the method, right. take the methodology. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the other thing on the, on Descartes, Ventil was clear because he got this from Bobby, the theistic proofs are objectively valid. The problem is not what they're doing. The problem is to whom you're speaking while mm. you're doing that sort of thing. Yeah. So, of course, God is the first cause. Of course, because there's contingency, there must be absolute necessity. Of course, that's right. But if, if you're presupposing, if your principium cognoscendi is simply the cause-effect relation, mm. then Bertrand Russell's right. Nobody could tell me why God comes himself can't be created or why he doesn't need it. Nobody can tell me that. The other way you can tell people that is because God's revealed himself in that way. Once you understand that, if people are interested in causality or contingency or whatever design, that's fine. Go with it, but recognize the preconditions in order for those things to be the case. So I think that's great because uh, another famous line from Van Til is brute facts are mute facts. And um, so, so I've, I've been playing with that a lot myself when I, when I'm, thinking through theistic proofs and it's just the principle of sufficient reason. So a lot of people go, yeah, you know, PSR is good. And then you kind of go back to God and you're like, what if I said that all, you know, brute, brute facts are mute facts. And like, Oh, is that Van Til? Well, well, fine. I'll say PSR then, you know, that's fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is, which is fine. But I do have these guiding principles and I like saying I, I did get that from Van Til. So if you like that, then stick that in your craw, you know? Um, yeah, that's very good. Well, uh, Dr. Oliphant, this has been awesome, man. It's been really fun to, uh, I, I appreciate all of your work. It's been really fun talking with you here, but um, I can only do this because you've written all these annotations and you've written all these books uh, that I've read in the past. So really, th- thanks for all your work and thanks for being able to go deep and talk about the, the Latin with us here today. Well, Parker, thanks for your work. I appreciate all that you're doing. You're, you're way beyond things that I'm doing, and I'm glad you're working on these things and incorporating the, the, incorporating these things in various contexts. It's so needed and so important. So yeah. thanks for doing all that. Yeah, definitely, man. This is awesome. So uh, we're going to have to do it again. Hopefully you, you continue annotating, but maybe I can lure you back into uh, talking more Van Til, philosophy, theology stuff. Sure. Anytime. Awesome. All right, folks. Well, that's going to have to do it. Again, I commend the book. It is A Christian Theory of Knowledge. Um, it's the updated version. It's the annotated version by Dr. K. Scott Oliphant. That's going to have to do it for us for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.